Good morning, church. Turn with me to the book of Job. Job is spelled G-O-B because preaching Job is quite a job. And all the study, all the elders have been going through to study this book. Up to this point in the book of Job, Job and his three friends have been trying to figure out why Job has been suffering. And they've been debating the issue back and forth. The discussions have been heated at times, insulting at times, and they come to the point where they have absolutely nothing more to say to one another. They're just sitting there, having resolved nothing, and entrenched in their positions. Let's read the first five verses of this 32nd chapter. So these three men ceased to answer Job, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job, because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends, because they found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had awaited to speak to Job because they were older than he. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Unbeknownst to us at this point, there's been another one sitting there, a young man, listening quietly to all the arguments back and forth during all the discussions that have been happening and reflecting upon them. And this young man is not happy the way the discussions went and surely not happy with the way they ended without any resolution. And now he speaks up giving some insight on the issue. He is concerned about Job's self-righteousness, that Job justified himself rather than God. And that's a bad position to be in, that we can understand Job speaking from his pain. Elihu was perturbed also at the three friends because they had declared Job a sinner without giving any evidence of Job's horrible sins that would deserve such suffering. They had determined theologically that because Job was suffering, he must be a sinner. Rather than looking at the suffering of Job having maybe another cause, which is that we can suffer not because we're evil, but because we are righteous. The first chapter sets this out clearly. Job was declared the most righteous man in his generation, and here are these three righteous men trying to tell the most righteous man that he's not righteous. This is the principle behind substitutionary atonement, that the righteous are the innocent, suffers for the guilty. And that is the theme of atonement in the scripture that Jesus, the innocent one, suffered. 
not because of his own sins or guilt, but he bore upon himself our sins. And so a very important argument has been left out between Job and his friends. Job found wrong in what God was doing to him, and in doing so, Job robbed God of his glory. And the friends, though they were right in much of what they said, they were not right in how it applied to Job. They robbed God of his glory by taking otherwise sound theology and misapplying it. And as a, a pastor, I've always had those concerns of taking God's truth and misapplying it in my life and the life of others. It's a warning for us all. And so in verse 12 of this chapter, Allahu concludes that they have not refuted Job or answered his arguments. I gave you my attention. Behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. Beware lest you say we have found wisdom. God may vanquish him, not man. He has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. These three friends took Job's struggling over why he is suffering as a personal attack on them and their theological understanding. And Ellis, who says, I've got no argument with Job, but I think he needs to be given an answer in God's behalf. God speaks to mankind in many various ways, but we as people are not often listening. And in the 33rd chapter, verses 29 through 30, Elihu points out that God often uses affliction in our life to bring us enlightenment. Behold, God does all these things in the previous verses, twice, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit that he might be lighted with the light of life. He answers Job that it does profit a man to delight in God and that God does not deal with any man in wickedness, wrong, or injustice. Turn over to 34, chapter 34, verses 10 through 12. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And so there's the answer to Job. Job, despite what you feel is, that's going on, God has not done anything unrighteous or wrong or mean to you. And despite how you may feel about Job, God and what he has done isn't doing it also out of injustice. In Hebrews, the 12th chapter, we're not going to be there long, so you don't need to 
turn to it, but you can just listen, but for further reference later. In Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 6, it says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone whom he receives. Job's discipline was not because of the hate of God. It was because of the love of God. As a father loves his child and brings the pain of discipline in their lives, so God was loving Job. In verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, and Job sure found that out, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines us as his sons for our betterment. And though the wicked who reject God suffer for their turning away from him, the righteous who trust in God suffer for continued growth and holiness. God is above it all. Chapter 35, verses 6 through 7, this is pointed out. If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness, a son of man. God is above it all. Our righteousness and our sins affects him. We're such little ants before the great God of the universe who is bigger than the universe. It doesn't benefit him. It doesn't harm him. He benefits or harms us. And then in the 36th chapter, as we continue to take a look at the words of Eli, who, and then we'll take a look at the words of Job in coming chapters, he says this, bear with me a little and I will show you. For I have yet to say, yet something to say on God's behalf. All the others have been using human arguments. No one has been seeking to give the argument from the point of view of God. And so he sets forth here a theology of God, an understanding of God, so we can understand how we can react to life when it's painful and confusing. And so he sets forth, verse 3, I will get my knowledge from afar and ascribe righteousness to my maker. God is righteous. No matter what you've argued, God is righteous. And then down in verse 5, Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength and of understanding. We are not mighty. We do not have a lot of understanding, but that is the character of God. And then in verse 22 of this chapter, he says, Behold, God is exalted in power. Who is a teacher like him? We don't teach God. He teaches us. There's no greater teacher than God. In verse 23, who has prescribed for him his way? Who's going to tell God the way he should go? Or who can say, you have done wrong? 
Then in verse 26, behold, God is great and we know him not. You think you know God in all your arguments. You don't know him one little bit. He's greater than you know. And the number of his years are unsearchable because they are from and to eternity. Verses 24 and 25, remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked upon it. Mankind beholds it from afar. We do not understand God or his work. And that's why life and our pain and our struggles are at times so puzzling to us. One of the scientists of the modern era has given the illustration between God and us like this. The Atlantic Ocean is all the knowledge of the world and all that God knows, even though that does not do justice to God and all the knowledge. And if you stand, and this is my paraphrase now, if you stand at Ocean City and you have a thimble and you put a thimble into the ocean, that's how much we know compared to the knowledge that is out there in the universe. And that is what Elihu was saying here. Take our ignorance in God's perfection when we're considering the difficulties of life. And then Elihu proclaims God's majesty, which leads up to the appearance of God. And so we see in 37 verse 1 through 5, chapter 37 verse 1 through 5, at this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. There is a tornado approaching. There is a whirlwind coming. The wind's picking up. The sky is getting dark. The lightning's flashing. The thunder could be heard in distance. And just the time that, that, that Elihu is speaking of the greatness of God, God shows up in this storm to declare his glory. Under the whole heaven, he lets go, and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After his voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. God is great. And if you've ever cowered in a thunderstorm, if as a young child you ever went to your parents' bedroom and needed the security of safety from the storm, that's what we need to see of the glorious God. That our understanding of Him makes us tremble before Him, not challenge Him as we perceive His greatness. And then... Elihu confronts, Elihu confronts Job 
with various questions. Verse 15, do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Verse 16, do you know the balancing of the clouds and the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Verse 18, can you, like him, spread out the skies, hard as cast metal mirror? Teach us what we can say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of darkness. Verse 23, the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Our proper response to God, especially when we have no answers in life, is to understand the awesome majesty of God. And Elihu says, in all your debates, and all that you've said, you've left out the glory and majesty of God. God has been left to a cold theological debate of point and counterpoint that wrongly presented why Job was suffering and treating God like he was answerable to Job rather than Job answering to him. Job, out of his pain, as is, happens much time in our sinful human hearts, has said some rather rash things, and Elihu is calling him on it. And now in the 38th chapter, we hear from God out of the storm. Now, we've seen some of these storms recently, where whole communities are devastated by a tornado. This tornado power is now upon them. And Elaho, who goes to the background as the storm gets close, and God speaks out of this storm to Job and also to the three friends. 38.1, then Jehovah answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Who do you think you are, Job? In the ignorance of what is going in your life, why do you think you have any answers to this? They are beyond you. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? How long have you lived, Job, and what have you done? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measure? Surely you know who stretched the line upon it. On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted with joy. Of course, Job wasn't there. Job wasn't even alive. God, the mighty creator, was there and he did it. Job didn't do it. Job doesn't understand it. Verse 12, have you commanded the mornings since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? People who do not believe in predestination have to answer this. Did you have any choice when you were going to be born? The Roman era, the Egyptian era, the American era, the English era? Did you have any choice what nation you would be born in? Or what class or economic you would be born in? Or what sex you would be born with? Or what gifts or intelligence or, or deformities you might be born with? These things are all determined by God who makes them all. And our response is not to question it and to challenge it, but to accept it and give God glory for where he put us, when he put us, how he put us, with what he put us as. Then we see... Other questions being asked. Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Verse 17, have the gates of death been revealed to you? 18, have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light? Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Verse 24, what is the way to the place where light is distributed? And on and on, God says, what do you know about this? What do you know about this? And then a kind of sarcasm, he says, verse 21, you know, for you were born then, and the number of your years is great. Not. And so the rest of this chapter is a a reviewing of all the things that God knows and Job does not, a series of can you, can you, can you, and all through chapter 39. And then in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, the Lord challenges Job this way, shall the fault finder Contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Okay, Job, it's time for you to speak. And then Job answered Jehovah and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, 
and will not answer twice, but will not proceed further. Job gets it. He understands what Elihu and God have been saying. His proper position is now to prostrate himself before God and be silenced before him. I love that call to worship that says, God is in the heavens. Let all the earth be quiet, silent, or still before him. What a way to begin worship. God is in the heavens. We are on the earth. Let's sit here and be still before him and receive what he has for us in worship. Our proper response to life is this response of Job, is to be so overwhelmed by the glory of God that we humble ourselves and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him. But God presses him further. Verse 7, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong, and will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Job is no doubt cowering before this voice of God. When the children of Israel heard the voice of God in Sinai, they said to Moses, we do not want to hear the voice of God anymore. You go find out what he says and tell us. They could not endure the thundering presence and voice of God. And so he continues to press the truth home. Verse 10. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And then he considers verse 15, Behemoth, and in 41.1, Leviathan, two huge creatures that Job would have to cower before who could not train, who could not control, and says, what can you do with these God-made creatures living on this earth? If you cannot, if you cannot deal with these creatures that God has made and control them, how are you going to control the one who made them? And Job is further humbled 
And in chapter 42, 1 through 6. Then Job answered Jehovah and said, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The suffering Job, rather than just being abased physically, is now abased in his inner man, knowing that he spoke, not seeing the majesty of God, and repents in dust and ashes. Ever talk about somebody in a free and disparaging way, and then you hold a conversation with them when they're around and you find out that your viewpoint or considerations cannot stand up to the presentation of the other side? You could not understand their point of view and their point of view makes your arguments look bad and yours fall short. So here, we can't be so sure about many things in life and so therefore we need humility. Our response to God is an error if we do it with anger, doubt, frustration, or hurt. For such responses do not enable us to learn but rather to reject God and his blessings he has for us. One time I was sitting doing membership interviews, and one of the persons I was interviewing, I said, knowing your history, you went to church at one time and you stopped going to church, and now you're coming back to church. Why? What happened that you stopped going and now you're coming back? He said, well, I had something in my life I wanted dearly and it didn't happen. And I was angry at God because of it. I stopped going to church and I, I had this bitterness towards God for many years. And one day he said, I woke up and I said, I'm just robbing myself of the blessings of God. I'm just cutting off my nose to spite my face. He says, I want to come back and get the blessings of God. I understand now that that might not have been the best thing for me and that the way God led me was still a good way. May we not make the same error. May we see the glory of God in all things and respond to him in humility, listening to God in his word that he has given to teach us. It is not ours to rage against God, though the sinful heart in times of great suffering may cause us to do so, but to bow the knee before him in his glory 
being able as the martyrs of old to sing praise to God while they're being engulfed in flames rather than wondering to God, why are you doing this to me? This is totally lost on mankind today, and I believe it's been totally lost even among believers. The puny, ignorant people who deny God's existence think that they know it all, and God just laughs from heaven. Why do the nations rage? Why do they resist God and His Messiah? God in heaven laughs at scorn with them because they've rejected the foundation stone God has established for the right building and understanding of life. That cornerstone is the suffering Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that we might have great thoughts of you. For the greater thoughts we have of you the lesser thoughts we have of all those things that ail us. Help us, as Isaiah, to cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, as he was in worship in the temple and the heavens opened and he saw God in the temple in heaven, you in the temple of heaven, and his worship could only be overwhelmed by your glory. We pray that we might see your glory too. And that might answer all of our questions in life as we submit ourselves to you and to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.